Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and I want to find all the best stuff to listen to. Each week we go hunting for top audio storytelling from New Zealand and around the world and play it to you. And in this week's show... Most males, they love to see women with big bottoms. The hummus is ours. They take our hummus and they make it their tradition. Dear Mr. Kennedy... Who do you turn to when your teenage daughter buys and brings home pornographic or obscene materials? She was, at that point, by far the most exciting person I had ever met. We've got the lost history of Louie Louie, people taking growth hormones meant for poultry to get a better body, a battle over the history of hummus, and a meeting with a fading Hollywood starlet that changed a man's life forever. That's all coming up, and I'd love to hear any listening recommendations you've got too, so do get in touch by email, pods at radionz.co.nz. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour, or you can record and send in voice messages using RNZ's Vox Pop app. Louie Louie by The Kingsman, the soundtrack to raucous parties and good times. You might even remember John Belushi beerily belting it out with the other frat boys in the 1978 film Animal House. You can try to tell what the lyrics say too, a bit like the FBI did when it investigated the song for obscenity. Who knows what they're singing? And please don't assume that the Kingsmen were actually the ones that wrote the track. From KCRW's series Lost Notes, David Weinberg tells the true story of Louis Louis. It's a warm April night in Anaheim, California, 1955. Richard Berry is sitting in his dressing room at the Harmony Park Ballroom. He's about to go on stage. So you got a black guy in Orange County singing R&B to white kids in the most segregated part of Southern California. Suddenly, his ears perk up. The opening band is a Latin trio, and through the wall, Barry can hear them playing. All he's really hearing is the beat. That was part of what was important about it. It's that beat that changes Richard Barry's life forever. When he hears it, he reaches for the nearest scrap of paper. He scrawls out a name, and actually, he writes it twice. From that scrap of paper, a song emerges, one that becomes a powerful force in America. That name that Richard Berry wrote down on a scrap of paper was Louis, which became the title of the song, Louis Louis, a song that years later became an anthem and one of the most recorded songs in history. But all of that happened by chance. Barry's version, the original recording of Louis Louis, wasn't the one that became a huge hit. The one that rose to the top of the charts was recorded by a band of white kids, 
the Kingsmen from the Pacific Northwest, who were still in high school when they recorded it in 1963. And against all odds, against all logic, it was their version that became the most famous. Because if you listen close, the recording is kind of terrible. The singer's problem is that there's a boom mic over his head, and he thinks he has to stretch his neck up to be heard while he's singing. Dave Marsh is a music writer and author of the book Louie Louie, the history of the world's most famous rock and roll song. Unfortunately, these guys were in high school and had no goddamn idea what they were doing, none whatsoever. The singer Jack Eli, who's wearing braces, sang into the wrong part of the microphone which is why, on the band's first take of Louie Louie, the lyrics are nearly impossible to understand. And Eli screws up and comes in too early on a verse. And then there is the moment when the drummer, Lynn Easton, drops his drumsticks mid-song and yells out the word So after that first disastrous take, the band naturally expected to do another one. After all, you can't yell f in the middle of a song and expect it to become a huge radio hit, right? But because studio time was expensive and the producer was a cheapskate, they called it a rap. And the Kingsman's fate was sealed forever. Okay, let's give it to him right now. The idea that the Kingsman's version, this disastrous amateur recording, would become the definitive recording, it's totally bonkers. But it also makes total sense. This is no mortal song we're talking about. This is Louie Louie, a rock and roll miracle that throughout its strange life defied all logic. Louie Louie gets its power from its simplicity, from its primitive howl in the face of all that is proper and refined. It's the essence of rock and roll distilled into three chords and a haphazard pile of indecipherable words. It's a disaster of a recording, sure, but it's a magnificent disaster. Unfortunately, there was an even bigger disaster waiting for the song's writer, Richard Berry. Just a few years before Louie Louie made it big for the Kingsman, he was broke and needed cash to buy his future wife an engagement ring. So Berry sold away the rights to this and some other songs, literally for peanuts, 750 US dollars. His timing couldn't have been worse. Here's David Weinberg again. So how did this flawed version of Louie Louie become one of the biggest hit songs in American history? It was played as the worst song of the week. Heidi Ginsburg, your host up and down the New England coast seven nights a week. A Boston radio DJ named Arnie Woo Woo Ginsburg chose the Kingsman's Louie Louie to play as part of his weekly segment, The Worst Record of the Week. But after Ginsburg played Louie Louie, the phone started ringing. Listeners loved it and wanted to know where they could get a copy. And the song started rising on the charts and getting airplay all over the country. There we have a little bit of song for you and the song that we feel is still going to be a big hit around. I like that very much. When K-E-W-B, that's going to be very hot sound. You never know what's going to be a hit. And I'll miss my guess if that one isn't. People who liked rock and roll understood that it was a work of some kind of perverse genius. So that made it successful. And then the governor of Indiana stepped in. On January 21st, 1964, the governor of Indiana, Matthew Welsh, 
received a letter from a teenager who said the lyrics to Louie Louie were dirty. So Welsh and his executive secretary procured a copy of the record and listened to it. At first, they couldn't make out the lyrics. But as Welsh later claimed, after slowing the record down, he could make out the words. And they were so filthy that he said his ears tingled. And Welsh was not the only government official to get a complaint about Louis Louis. On January 30th, the United States Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy received a letter from an angry father. Here's an excerpt. Dear Mr. Kennedy, who do you turn to when your teenage daughter buys and brings home pornographic or obscene materials being sold in every city, village, and record shop in this nation? I would like to see these people, the quote-unquote artist, the record company, and the promoters, prosecuted to the full extent of the law. These morons have gone too far. Along with the letter, the father submitted a copy of the supposed dirty lyrics, which are as follows. Louis, oh no. Grab her way down low. There's a fine little girl waiting for me. She is just a girl across the way. Then I take her all alone. She's never the girl I lay at home. Tonight at 10 or lay her again. Will your girl and by the way, and on that chair, all lay her there. Because the lyrics in the Kingsman's version of Louis Louis are so unintelligible, the song became a sort of Rorschach test in America. The listener heard what they wanted to hear. Like a magnificent cloud drifting across the sky, not everyone looks up and sees the same shape. And kids in junior high, because they are kids in junior high, heard phrases like bone in her hair and get her wang on. And they wrote down these dirty lyrics and passed them around like a playboy snatched from dad's secret porn stash. Of course, to find out what the real lyrics were, all one had to do was contact the record company who put out Louie Louie. And when the FBI launched their investigation, that's what they did. But when they read the real lyrics, a Jamaican sea shanty written by Richard Berry, they still didn't think they were the actual words sung by the Kingsmen. And so began an 18-month FBI investigation. Some of the FBI agents sat around record players listening to Louie Louie at various speeds, trying to hear the words wang on and bone in her hair. While other agents got more exciting assignments, like going to see the Kingsmen on their nationwide tour. In fact, I recall one time specifically in a motel in Massachusetts, I think we were all in one large room, a knock on the door and it was FBI. This is Kingsman keyboard player Barry Curtis again. They checked us out pretty thoroughly, saw nothing was going on, kids drinking Cokes and, oh, smoking cigarettes and watching TV. Later that night, the band played their show to hundreds of teenage fans and a couple of FBI agents. And they couldn't ultimately find anything wrong with our performance, at least in terms of being lascivious. Curtis and his bandmates thought the whole thing was ridiculous. It was a sea shanty, and ultimately the banning of Louie Louie and all the press it got was the best possible thing that could have ever happened to the Kingsmen. I'll just reiterate what so many others have said about things. If you're going to ban something, be careful, because instead of selling 2 million, it sold maybe 10 million records. And you know, it wasn't a hit for like one summer. It was a hit two summers in a row, which never happens. I mean, it doesn't happen to this day. Maybe a Beatles record. It got to be almost like Beatlemania. It wasn't so much our band was so cool like the Beatles, but our song was so hugely popular that 
they just assumed we were cool. <laughs> In the end, the FBI's conclusion wasn't that the lyrics weren't dirty. It was that they had no idea what the hell the Kingsmen were saying. In fact, after 18 months of listening to the song over and over again and following the band around, these ace investigators didn't even notice that the drummer yells F right in the middle of the song. So the FBI closes its case. And by December of 1963, Louie Louie had climbed to number two on the charts. But it never did reach number one. And what song, you might be wondering, beat out Louie Louie for that number one spot? Well, that would be Dominique by The Singing Nun. Do you really think that for a week, while Louis Louis was that hot, that Dominica by The Singing Nun sold more records that week? I don't believe that. I think that that's just what they needed to do because it was too disreputable to let Louis Louis be number one. And I'm dead serious. And I, I think the same thing still goes on today. Meanwhile, Louis Louis' influence spread like wildfire throughout the world. But the man who wrote it, Richard Berry, was largely unaware that his Jamaican sea shanty had entranced young white kids across the globe. In 1978, the movie Animal House was released, and Louie Louie was featured multiple times in the movie. A whole new generation discovered the song as a party anthem for frat boys. And again, it started generating buckets of money for Max Fiertag, the man who bought the song from Richard Berry for $750. Berry, though, lived with his mother in south-central Los Angeles. His marriage to Dorothy had ended. She was now a backup singer with Ray Charles. And Barry was barely getting by, still playing in late-night dive bars. He said he would come out of these clubs in the morning to the sunlight and just think what it's going to be like when he would do this for the last time and come across the threshold and just fall down on his face and die, and nobody would know who the hell he was. And he wouldn't have any money in his pocket to bury himself. During this period, Barry's friend Jim Dawson, a member of the local doo-wop society, would get Barry gigs occasionally here and there. I would pick him up and take him to, like, a, a cable TV show or something like that. Meanwhile, Louis Louis continued to generate millions of dollars for Max Fiertag. I can never figure out why he wasn't really pissed off, or at least why he didn't show it. He just didn't seem to have a mean bone or an angry bone in his body. He was not an aggressive person. And I think part of the problem was that these guys, especially back then when they were really dealing with the, the white power structure, is they needed a, an asshole, you know, a guy, usually a white guy, an attorney, who could just go in, you know, and would make demands. Richard Berry might have lived out the rest of his life in poverty, but in 1984, a friend of Richard's put him in touch with the kind of white asshole, no offense, who knew how to make demands, a guy named Chuck Rubin. How's the beat go? Da-da-dat, da-dat, da-da-dat, da-dat. I think that's the best I can do. Chuck Rubin is the founder and president of Artist Rights, a company that helps musicians get the rights to their music back. Barry called Rubin up and told him about how he'd sold the rights to Louie Louie and several other songs for $750. He said that he hoped that I would have some time to look into his case and see whether or not there was anything that could be done. But because Barry sold the rights willingly, he really didn't have much of a case. Nevertheless, Rubin said he would see what he could do. And then, 
Nothing happened. And Barry continued to grind out an existence on welfare. A year went by after his conversation with Chuck Rubin. Then another year. I think a few years. Uh, maybe two. 1986 rolled around. And then this opportunity just opened up and... Uh, Quite frankly, I felt that we could take advantage of it, and it worked. What happened was that California Cooler, a brand of sugary neon green wine cooler, wanted to launch a big national ad campaign featuring frat boys and sorority girls in swimsuits dancing on the beach to the Kingsman's version of Louie Louie. Over 20 years of research and development have gone into every bottle of California Cooler. When Chuck Rubin got wind of the pending commercial, he saw his opportunity. Even though he had no chance of winning a lawsuit, Rubin figured that just the threat of one might scare California coolers away. And Rubin was right. Feartag, the man who owned Louie Louie, agreed to make a deal to avoid losing the lucrative commercial contract. He would give Barry 75% of the rights to Louie Louie. But of that 75%, Barry had to give half to Chuck Rubin. It wasn't ideal, but for Barry, half of 75% was better than nothing. And in that first year alone, Barry made more money off Louis Louis royalties than he had in his entire career as a musician. David Weinberg with part of Louis Louis, the strange journey of the dirtiest song never written. And that's from KCRW's series Lost Notes. And special thanks to Lost Notes executive producer Nick White for letting me play that to you. The Kitchen Sisters started working together on a live local radio show in California back in the late 1970s. Since then, Nikki Silver and Davia Nelson have made about 500 audio documentaries together, covering topics from space food to Spanish shepherds, from kimchi to the recording of Prince's album Purple Rain. Their works appeared all over the world, including on the US Public Broadcasting Service NPR, the BBC, the ABC in Australia, RNZ, and more recently on the Radiotopia Podcasting Network. And over the decades, they've refined a distinctive style. It's audio-rich, full of found sounds, voicemail messages and music. It's mainly recorded in the field, not in the studio, and there's not much of them in their stories. I'll speak to Davia Nelson in just a minute, but first, here's a couple of her favourite Kitchen Sisters stories to share. This is Operation Hummus, the cultural and political battle over the origins of a simple chickpea dish. My name is Fadi Aboud, born in Lebanon. I served as Minister for Tourism. I am the one who led Lebanon to break the Guinness Book of Records by making the largest tub of hummus in the world. We want the whole world to know that hummus and tabbouleh are Lebanese. At the time, a group of us came from a food exhibition in France. Suddenly, they were telling us hummus is an Israeli traditional dish. I mean, you know, the world now thinks that Israel invented hummus. I was rather upset, you know, and I thought the best way to tell the world that hummus is Lebanese is to break the Guinness Book of Records. It was a big issue all over the news that hummus only Lebanese. They say, no, hummus for everybody. My name is Jaudat Ibrahim. We're in Abu Ghosh restaurant in Abu Ghosh village between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. 
I, I came with the idea. We're going to broke our Guinness World Record. In the town of Abu Ghosh this morning, Israel retook the title for the world's largest hummus dish, weighing four tons, scooped into a satellite dish. Media came here and over 50 TV channels all over the world. More than Obama visiting any country. The Lebanese, they're already planning a counterattack. We call it the hummus wars, when Lebanon accused the Israeli people of trying to steal the hummus and make it their national dish. Hummus became a symbol. My name is Ronit Verel. I'm a food journalist about the culture of food here in Israel. I live in Tel Aviv. In Israel, we don't have a strong food tradition. This place only exists 60 years. You don't have specific dishes which can be common ground for all the Israelis. So hummus became a common ground. Palestinians also made hummus the symbol that we didn't only take their lands, we take their food as well and make it ours. The hummus is ours. They take our hummus and they make it their tradition. My name is Noha Muslim and I'm a Palestinian. I work with journalists. I'm a fixer. People run to get hummus when they're in Ramallah. It's like getting a good pizza downtown Rome or getting a good a T-bone steak in Texas. I imagine, I haven't been. <laughs> the restaurant owner, he says, what distinguishes any hummus is nafs, which means soul in Arabic. They pound it, they pound it. You use good tahine, sesame seed crushed, sumac. Lemons from Jericho. Palestinians don't mind that Lebanon is proud of its hummus. It puts Arabs together. The actual name, hummus, comes from the Arabic for chickpea. Lebanon wanted to register hummus with the European Union for Lebanon. In the way of champagne, parmesan, like the Greeks did with feta cheese. My name is Ari Ariel, author of the article The Hummus Wars. The Association of Lebanese Industrialists started a campaign called Hands Off Our Dishes. The problem from the Lebanese perspective was that there were these Israeli companies that were selling most of the hummus in the world. We were not successful in registering hummus for Lebanon. In the first two decades of the state, the Israeli people didn't really eat local food. They stacked with the thing that is close to your heart. It's also a political issue. If I eat Palestinian food, in a way, I acknowledge the fact that they exist. In the 1950s, the Israeli army started serving hummus in mess halls. And the average Israeli came to consider it an everyday food. These foods become more familiar, kind of hip, something young people will eat. My name is Daphna Hirsch, faculty member at the Open University of Israel. Hummus is appropriated as the food of the new Sabra, the new Israeli man who is rooted in the land. And Israel, hummus is considered a masculine dish. It's considered a kind of masculine ritual to go to you know, a group of men to the hummusiyah and eating hummus wiping. This, you know, large circular gestures. Hummus, unfortunately, has become like in the category of fast foods. But actually, in the Arab and all of Palestine, hummus is Friday honorable breakfast. The father wakes up in the morning, makes hummus, invites all his daughters, his sons. It's a way to get together in the morning of a Friday. 
when the family wants to throw all their worries and problems away. My name is David Varon from uh, Tel Aviv, and I'm a taxi driver. What does your tattoo say? No fear. Some people are afraid to live in a country where there's so much blood and uh, wars and conflict of thousands of years. This conflict is about religion, and it will not be over until religion will be over. Hummus, falafel, is maybe the only thing that gets people to sit together with different thoughts to eat the same food. This kind of approach which says, oh, you know, if we eat hummus together, then peace will come through the stomach and all that. But no, I mean, as long as occupation continues, then hummus is not going to solve it. Now you can see it's quite a crowd, thousands of people gathered around. The hummus has been made... At a... We broke the Guinness World Record 2010. But to make the hummus is not the issue. To put things together, that's the main thing. People talking about blood and killing, and I want to take it to a different way. People can talk about Middle East nice things. That's just killing and shooting. Hummus. Nobody gets hurt with this world. Operation Hummus. And here's another Kitchen Sisters story for you. This one's set in Jamaica, and it's called Chicken Pills. Some girls, to be more attractive to the male, they get themselves into this use of chicken pills. I'm Carol Turpin, St. Catherine, Jamaica. Chicken pills are the same pills that you give to the chicken to make them grow faster. Some people use it if you want to get broader hips or bigger bottom. My name is Jason Turpin. I'm a college student from Kingston. In our Jamaican culture, you know, we, we love a girl that has a lot of shape. Most males, they love to see women with big bottoms. The whole idea of a cocoa, cola bottle yeah, shape. When, when, when they're talking about a, a cocoa bottle shape, it's like more heavier down on the hips. I don't want a maga woman. That's how the men would speak. You say maga, we say maga. They're figuring that if you look maga, you look poor and um, poor in the sense of you're not being taken care of. If you have a big bottom, that means that you're sitting on a lot of power. I'm Carolyn Cooper, Professor of Literary and Cultural Studies at the University of the West Indies, Mona, Jamaica. In our culture, you get competing norms of beauty. There's a kind of anorexic, Eurocentric model of beauty. Also a much more Afrocentric body type that is valorized. If you have no meat on your bones, the society can't see your wealth, your progress, your being. My name is Sonia Stanley Nile. I am a lecturer in cultural studies at the University of the West Indies. We have these conversations in the culture about conceptions of the ideal body. It's in the music, the dance halls. There's a particular song about the woman whose derriere is of such quality, flexibility, and panache that she can successfully, with vim and vigor, ride the motorbike back 
and be a visual spectacle. It is a beautiful sight. I'm a love to watch to see the young girl on the bike back. Bike back, girl. What I find amazing is the degree to which women will put themselves at risk to fit an image that they consider to be ideal. Action. You got a ticking pill? You can't do that. Try and stop me. My name is Raquel Jones, I'm 21 years old and I'm from Kingston, Jamaica. I was casted to play a lead role in a short film, Chicken Pill. It's about two teenage girls, one getting more attention from the boys in the class. The other character, Lisa, is having self-esteem problems, so she turns to the chicken pill. Oh, here, here's something to look forward to, Lisa. Diarrhea, rashes. Oh, I'm sure Ronnie will like rashes on those new breasts and cancer, Lisa, cancer. I am Dr. Neil Persad Singh, a dermatologist in Kingston, Jamaica. Chicken pills, the harmful ingredient is arsenic. Over the years, I've seen quite a few people who have taken the pill, mostly women. I think they're a little bit secretive about it, and they don't want their friends, etc., to know. The government, they've banned the importation of chicken pill. However... The pill is freely available all over the island. Part of Chicken Pills from the Kitchen Sisters there, Nikki Silver and Davia Nelson. And I spoke to Davia from San Francisco, who described their storytelling style. For the most part, we don't narrate and we don't include our questions. We Really early on, like about the third or fourth piece we did together, we just began to eliminate ourselves. We had so much from our interviews and from the music we were gathering and oral histories and archival audio, field recordings, that we just, we didn't make a conscious effort to not be in our pieces. We just had all these elements we wanted people to get to hear that we'd gathered. And also I think both Nikki and I are very visual. And I I think on some level we've always felt we were making films that our microphone is a camera and we shoot in close-up. And so the more elements, you know, the more we can paint that kind of sonic picture, the more visual our work is, the more archival elements that pull you back in time or the music that just cracks open your soul, that, I would say, is our signature sound. The boat. The daughter. I went to school for manicures. I worked in this shop almost four years. I came here in 1983, just by myself. About 14, I escaped it by boat to Thailand, to uh, Philippines, and then came here. In terms of our kind of topics, in terms of what we are trying to talk about and what matters to us. I, I keep seeing that the word lost and hidden and unknown, you know, those are, we have a series called Hidden Kitchens. It's about secret, unexpected, below the radar cooking, how communities come together through food. We did a series called The Hidden World of Girls, Girls and the Women They Become. And that was about secret identities and coming of age, rituals and rites of passage. I'd say rituals and traditions and histories is a through line through everything. Voices you don't usually hear on the radio, communities that usually have no access to the media. You know, we're very devoted to trying to chronicle the unchronicled. 
um, and make sure that their voices are part of the national and global conversation. Fancy nails in Berkeley. Oh, Lisa, this is me, Lisa, the owner of the Fancy Nail. Yeah, okay, so I will see you at 1.30. Thank you, bye-bye. When you come to the country here, the easy way to be getting, get a job is going to the nail salon. That's why the population from Vietnam, they all do nail business. How do you find these hidden stories, though? Because that must be part of the challenge. If you've got a mainstream narrative telling you a version of history, how do you find those hidden or marginalised voices? We, I think one of our big tenets, we sort of have these commandments that we've written for ourselves over the years, the 12 commandments, but one of them is talk to strangers. We just, it's really keeping an ear to the ground. Um, for example, I don't like to drive that much. So for a while, I was taking a lot of taxi cabs. This is uh, back in 2005 or so, when the Hidden Kitchen series was born. And here in San Francisco, where I live, I it was Yellow Cab, was one of the big cab companies then, still is. And I would notice that every time I got into a Yellow Cab, the driver was from Brazil. And not just from Brazil, but from the same town in Brazil, Goiânia. And it turned out that 436 drivers for this company were all from the same town in Brazil. And they started to tell me about this woman, Jeanette, who would come every night at midnight outside on this abandoned industrial street outside the cab yard. And she would set up this little blue tent and she would just start street cooking Brazilian food all night long for the Brazilian cab drivers. And not just the Brazilians, the Russians, the Iranians, everyone would gather on this sort of industrial forlorn street and it just turned into this little magic oasis of culture and food. It just sort of opened up our eyes to the hidden kitchen. It has happened with every one of our projects. Once this one little moment opens our eyes to who is cooking on your street corner or who are the local kitchen pioneers and visionaries, suddenly everything seems to be a story. And the way we've worked for years, I guess the other through line, Richard, is um, we always open a phone line and we always open our website and we invite people to make tips and suggestions and story ideas and we collaborate with listeners all the time. So we had, um, for example, going back to Hidden Kitchens for a sec, we had 2,789 minutes of phone messages came in when we threw open the Hidden Kitchens hotline asking people to call in and tell us about the hidden kitchens and endangered traditions in their regions. Message 23 was received at 1.10 p.m. today. I'm Margaret Engel, a woman who works for legal aid, who's talking to me about how many of her clients get dinner. The people who struggle to even get food on the table because they don't have an official kitchen and who are using George Foreman grills and the like. The George Foreman grill has been an amazing success story as a kitchen appliance, but what I think many people don't realize is that immigrants and low-income people have contributed to that popularity. That is, to me, the epitome of the hidden kitchen. But now this whole wing of podcasting has opened up, and it's been beautiful to create new work for the podcast and kind of revisit some of our older stories and lengthen them and add material we always wanted to share with audiences. I was going to ask you about that 
transition, if you like, from working primarily for radio, for a radio broadcast and to a radio schedule, and now being part of this podcast network where it seems like you'd have perhaps more creative or artistic freedom to make longer pieces, to introduce more material. Has it changed what you do? You know, when we began on NPR, NPR sounded like a lot like what all these podcasts sound like now. It was very idiosyncratic. It was just inventing itself. It wasn't all that old when we began with it, when we were really young. If you look back at our early work, we have a ton of 20-minute pieces. Even up to Lost and Found Sound, there were a lot of 22-minute pieces that were very exploratory, went down a lot of different paths, opened up a lot of veins. But with news kind of on the rise and things getting more segmented, the cultural shows being one thing, the news and information becoming another, people thinking, I don't believe it, and I think that podcasting proves it, that people's attention spans aren't as short as many in the public radio world think they are, these really smaller incremental stories. I mean, I think there's something great about a three-minute and a four-minute and a five-minute and a six-minute stories, but not all. I think that people all times of day want to go deeper. So podcasting, yeah, did bring us back around to being able to be much more expansive, include much more idiosyncratic material, meander down a path we might not go. You know, often the first thing that bites the dust is humor. You know, someone in the midst of some really serious story tells a joke of some sort or sells an anecdote, and it leavens it or broadens it. And But when you're on such a hard clock, those, or even if people have a repeating style of talking, something really idiosyncratic about their speech that takes a little more time, that gets whacked too because you want, you're driving the car fast versus having mm. the time to hear those things that make us, so we can all hear what makes each other distinct. Davia Nelson from the Kitchen Sisters. And you can find links to their stories and all the info you'll need to listen to them and subscribe on our website now. That's at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Eva Krizyak's a radio producer and self-confessed nosy Parker who started her podcast Everyone Else as a bit of a side hustle a photography project taking shots of strangers that's developed into a series of interviews and a photographic podcast somewhere along the way. She basically approaches a random, interesting-looking stranger in the street and asks them if they have a story to share. Like a game of story roulette, these chance encounters can sometimes hit narrative gold. Eva edits herself out of the interviews, but if you listen to a few, you can tell that she enjoys the sound design part of the process. The audio effects, the quick cuts, the music and woozy distortions that pace her interviews and create a mood. Here's Pandora. It's the story of a meeting between narrator John and someone very famous, the then 59-year-old Hollywood star Louise Brooks. How it all started was this. I had been doing 
a summer in Japan where I was worked in my father's dental practice as a newly qualified dentist. We're talking about 1965. And when I left, I went to join some friends in San Francisco and drove right across America with them to the East Coast. And then I had a few days left before I had to get back to England. And I went to visit a friend of mine in New York City. And in 1965, New York was a fantastic place where almost anything was possible. It was a 24-hour city, and somehow having an English accent and wearing, as I did, a green corduroy suit, I could open all doors, etc. By chance, I happened to pick up a copy of Sight and Sound, which is a well-known English film magazine and the summer 1965 edition had in it an article by somebody called Louise Brooks and it was about her filming with a German director called Pabst and the making of a famous picture called Pandora's Box Anyway, I read this article and I became absolutely fascinated by this woman and the way she wrote and also by her appearance. She was extremely glamorous in a sort of 1920s sort of way. It got it into my head because the city made everything seem so possible that I might try and find her and see whether she was still alive, which was not certainty by any means. So I took myself off to the New York Public Library and there they had a whole lot of documents and so on. And somehow I managed to get the name of somebody I thought might know her and I did somehow get in touch with this chap and eventually I managed to get an address for her. She was still alive. She was living in Rochester, New, upstate New York, and I sat down to write a letter. This was a very difficult letter because I had to explain why I was a fan of hers without having seen any of her films, and it took me about a day and a half. September the 3rd, 1965, and, and then I give an address to which she can write if she does. I am from England, in America for the first time, and leaving in about a fortnight. I should like to be able to tell you that I am a fan of yours, but in a way it would be absurd, because I haven't seen any of your pictures yet, which makes this a little difficult to explain. What I have seen are five articles in magazines and the stills of you in the photographic section of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It was there, talking to the organiser, that I discovered that there are others as well who admit to a certain feeling of excitement and affinity without knowing exactly why. 
Indeed, there seems to be an underground movement of fans who haven't seen a Louise Brooks picture, but are nonetheless engaged by a kind of Louise Brooks mystique. I'm afraid this letter must seem weak in the light of the well-informed attention paid you usually, and the following request can have little grounding on reason or in merit. You may even think it impertinent. I would like very much to come to Rochester to see you, even briefly, to hear about the things you did in films, the people you knew, and especially, if you would permit it, some of what might have been published in your book. I can pretend no association with the cinema except that of interest. I am neither historian nor journalist, and the only thing you might consider remotely in my favour is that I would be freer from certain misconceptions than, say, the audience outside the Gloria Palast or the French boy who came by to see you last year. I know from Mr Carr that you value your privacy and so I do not expect too much your acquiescence in this. Besides, it is very short notice. But if you will allow me to come, I shall be most grateful to you for that. If not, please accept my thanks for and congratulations upon your magazine articles, of which I hope there will be more. When I get home, I hope to make myself a more legitimate fan by seeing your films. Yours sincerely, John Bessford. So I eventually sent this letter off and uh, waited. And, and a few days later, a reply came back. The 6th of September, 1965. Dear Mr. Besford, I will be glad to see you if you come to Rochester. Let me know in detail. My private home is... And then there's a telephone number. And then she finishes. You are sane, aren't you? Regards, Louise Brooks. I was very excited about this, and I, feeling that anything was possible, I, I phoned up the local radio station and said, would you please put out an announcement that I would like a lift to Rochester tomorrow <laughs> from Cape Cod, I think I was. And the man said, oh, I'm sorry, he said, I'd have to ask the manager, he said, this is a classical radio station, I don't think we can really interrupt the concert to get you a free ride, but... I'm going to Boston if it's any help. So I said, that would be lovely. And he collected me. And then he left me. And then I got a hitch to eventually Rochester. And I turned up at um, Louis Brooks's flat. She welcomed me in and sat down in a, a, a chair and I had my... I had a, a wicker kind of suitcase, like a picnic hamper, actually, and I really did look most peculiar, with a three-piece suit in corduroy, and it was pretty hot weather. She sat me down, and almost the first thing she said to me was, ''Are you homosexual?'' And I was completely stunned by this question. Nowadays, it would not be so odd, but in 1965, this was not something one was used to being asked. So I said no, and looked at her surprised. She said, well, she, she said, I just want to, to know how to approach you, which I immediately thought was very sensible. 
Once I sort of recovered from this rather startling question, we started to talk about film history and about her life and so on. And we actually talked, I made a note of it, for 36 hours without stopping. It was the most exciting. She was, at that point, by far the most exciting person I had ever met and remains one of the most exciting people I've ever met to this day. A few more twists in that story too. It's called Pandora and it's from the podcast Everyone Else. Thanks to Eva Krizyak for letting me play that to you. And that's about all from the podcast hour for now. Just a reminder, you've been listening to Lost Notes, The Kitchen Sisters and Everyone Else. And you'll find more details about all these shows on our website now. That's at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. So from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.